Hello, friends. Welcome back to Words with Witty. I'm your host, Anna Witty. It has been way too long since we last chatted. So without further ado, welcome into season two of the podcast. I created Words with Witty to chat with people who have inspiring stories. We'll talk about their work journeys, where they are at now in their career, and what they've learned about life and work along the way. Today's guest on the podcast is Sports Illustrated writer, entrepreneur, and podcast host, Chris Chavez. Chris primarily covers the world of track and field, covering marathons, and will be reporting on the Olympics in Tokyo this summer. Um, if that's not enough, Chris also started his own company, Sidious the Mag, back in 2017, where he creates relatable content in the world of running via podcast, YouTube, and written content. Content. Chris, like how we initially connected, I think, was over the Shalane Flanagan article that you wrote about when she retired a few years ago. Not a huge runner myself, but I love her cookbooks. Literally just had actually a recipe for lunch a few hours ago. So oh, did you? Yeah, I did. No, that's so funny you brought that story up because I just, yeah, it's what, maybe that might be like three or four years ago now, which is crazy how time flies. But yeah, I remember that story in particular because I think it was like the first time that she ever kind of hinted about retiring. And then after that, she ends up winning the New York City Marathon and extended like her career, like basically like another year. But no, yeah, that, that was definitely one of my favorite stories to write for, for SI. So, and you cover different sports, but running seems to be what you're passionate about and what you really primarily cover. So how did you initially get introduced to the sport? Yeah, so I was a very mediocre high school sprinter here in New York City. Uh, I went to an all-boys Catholic high school uh, called Xavier, and I was nothing special on the track. And I actually kind of like didn't really like the sport at all. Like I was, I d hated practice. I would skip it most times because I was also part of like the school newspaper and kind of like rose in the ranks there and was like the editor in chief of you know the high school newspaper and so i would sometimes use the newspaper as an excuse to get out of uh practice and then other times like when we'd be you know finalizing like the layout of the paper and all that, that kind of uh stuff that maybe wasn't as fun as you know writing and editing uh i'd use track practice to skip uh newspaper so it was like vice versa and um yeah i kind of didn't really see myself going on with anything having to do with running after college. I went to Marquette out in Milwaukee. And from there, my, I think in one of the early journalism classes, like we were asked, like, what is it we wanted to do in our career? And I said, oh, I want to cover like the Olympics uh, for Sports Illustrated, not really giving too, too much thought wow. about it. Cause growing up, I wanted to be a beat writer for like the New York Yankees. Like that was my, my that, that's what I wanted to do. I was a huge Yankee fan growing up. I think to this day, if there's ever a chance to interview like Derek Jeter, like he'd be the one athlete that I'd freeze up around uh, just cause he was like a hero for, to me growing up. And so I got to college and then all of a sudden running became, I think more of a part of my life because one of my buddies was, you know, packing on the freshman 15 and I didn't, didn't want that to be me. So I just started running for kind of like health and wellness and fitness. And I was just like, all right, let's do it. Like, let's get out for like two or three miles each day. And then I watched like the New York city marathon on TV and I was like, well, I want to do that. And so I got out, started running a little bit more and longer you know, did a couple half marathons with a goal of eventually someday doing, you know, the New York City Marathon. And then it was just a pure coincidence that like that May, May 2012, 
I stayed in on a Friday night, decided not to go out with some friends and stumbled on a live stream link from uh, FlowTrack. And uh, it was interesting because I was watching these pro athletes in track and field, which I didn't even know was like a thing running super fast. Like I had just run a 5k maybe a couple weeks before and I'd run it in like 20 minutes and to see some guy running 13 minutes, like I thought, Whoa, that is like superhuman. And like, that's insane. Like this guy's going to win gold at the Olympics in, in uh, London, which were like later on that summer. And I took it upon myself to like, well, this is cool. Uh, I didn't know there was this whole other side to the sport because typically if you're tuning into track and field at the Olympics, it's to watch Usain Bolt run for like 10 seconds or 20 seconds at most. And then that's about it. People tune out. And I was somehow captivated that there's so many more stories within the sport that don't get as much attention. And so I wanted to learn more about the athletes. I want to learn more about uh, some of the history of the sport. So I took it upon myself to watch a bunch of old YouTube videos, um, read some old Sports Illustrated stories, see, catch, you know, video interviews on YouTube or whatever that people were doing. And so really tried to learn as much as I could and jam-packed it into uh, that runway between May and then the Olympics rolling around later that summer. And then once that, I mean, that really kind of solidified why I became a bit of a track nut. That's, well, you answered like two or three more of my questions, but I want to go back to when you mentioned that you wanted to be a writer for Sports Illustrated. Why Sports mm -hmm. Illustrated in particular? Something really stood out to me about the way that they traditionally like covered the Olympics. Um, and it, I just for, forget why the Olympics was so shiny to me as like mm -hmm. this, this goal. Um, Tim Layden, I guess, is one of the, the best writers that they've had in their history. Um, and he, he and I were lucky to cross paths uh, for the first couple of years I was there. And he, he, when I covered my first Olympics eventually in 2016, like I worked alongside him every day of track and field. And that was kind of cool because it's someone whose work I've looked up to for so long. And then I'm like, kind of like the rookie um, doing kind of like the B work uh, at, at my first Olympics. So that was really, really awesome. You know, uh, I think one of my favorite writers ever is like David Epstein who wrote the book, uh, the sports gene. And so I remember always like reading his stories in particular. And so he's kind of the one that really kind of gripped me to, and I guess led to me gravitating towards Sports Illustrated. But yeah, I did, I did an internship at ESPN as well um, while I was in college. And so I don't really know if like the TV side ever like appealed to me or anything like that, but uh, yeah, it was, there was just something about SI that was, that was really cool. And I think it was part of it too, was the rich history of, you know, it being kind of like the magazine of record for uh, the United States and sports for so long. I used to get Sports Illustrated Kids. Did you get that? Yeah, I remember having that at my like school library and everyone would kind of like fight over like the yes. latest copy. Wow. By the time like it would get to you, uh, all of the trading cards or whatever was attached inside was already gone. And so, uh, yeah, it was always it was always a fight to get your hands on the first SI Kids. Yes. And there was posters in there. I had a few of them yep. in my closet. So funny. Yeah, and I remember. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I remember when I first got to SI in 2015, there used to be, this is back when the offices were right across the street from like Rockefeller Center. They used to be like the SI library, which was tucked away like on a 
different floor and it was just all these archives of like newspaper clippings and like old issues and books with like all at like every past copy of SI and I would go in there kind of like in my free time and there would be some night shifts where I was tra- working super late but if there wasn't anything going on I'd sneak away and go look through a bunch of old stuff and I remember I think at one point looking through some old SI kids and some old um SI covers and, and articles and it was just really cool I think I have a bunch of like photos on my phone like saved of when I got those chances to sneak away that's really cool were you a good reader growing up do you believe that transitions really easily into being a good writer that's that's so funny no one ever has really asked me that but I do think so because I remember sitting in front of uh, my, I think it was like third or fourth grade classroom reading like the fourth Harry Potter book. And it was this huge thing that was kind of like maybe the same size as like my body at the time. And, uh, my principal, I think walking by and being like, so impressed with the fact that I was reading this huge book and not really having an idea of what it was because it was way before, I guess the movies were even a thing. And, uh, it was, so I guess like, yeah, I did, I do. I, I do such a bad job of reading nowadays with any sort of consistency. I've definitely like tried to adopt more to like audiobooks sometimes because like maybe I can multitask it better. But yeah, I was definitely like a big reader growing up. And I think that's the one piece of advice I always like kind of try and impart on people when people ask me, it's like, oh, like, what kind of advice would you have to like get a, become a better writer or better interviewer and all that kind of stuff. And I'm always just like, read. I think reading, it doesn't even necessarily have to be sports. Um, I love reading, you know, interviews and profiles that are, are on people that are not in sports because you can kind of take whatever story that is and, you know, kind of take a step back and look at the skeleton of how that story came to be and, and ask yourself, like, what questions did they ask to get that quote? And like, what are they doing, you know, setting this scene and what is, how do they get this sort of detail? And I think all those, just taking that extra lens sort of uh, to stories has always been something that I enjoy uh, just, you know, and I think it's sort of helped me whether it's in my writing or in my interviewing um, that's always been, been fun. So I I guess it definitely is rooted in reading. And I just finished, I know like, and you mentioned not even having to read something that's related to sports. I just finished open um is that Andre Agassiz yes his autobiography and first of all highly recommend it's an amazing read I'm not a huge tennis person I learned so much about the sport of tennis and it really just helps you understand how athletes think so when you go to interview them or ask them questions you can put themselves in their shoes and two minutes after they were done competing kind of you know they share where they're at mentally and um that's like another thing you can take away from reading those types of books yeah, for sure. Like I, I love reading biographies. I've got like the Steve Jobs biography and the, the uh, who else? Oh, I've got the Alexander Hamilton biography like behind me. And it's not that I'm like, I'm not a big Apple guy or I'm not, I guess I was a big Hamilton guy after seeing like the the musical on Broadway. Um, but I just like, you know, cruise through those books because I wanted to learn kind of more about, you know, that person's history and exactly to your point, like what, how they think and how they go about making like these decisions that lead them to these awesome places in life. So yeah, biographies might be actually maybe my favorite sort of like genre to, to read. Same. And the other thing too, that I ironically took away from his read is how many times he failed and mm-hmm. he failed a lot more than he succeeded. And that's such a cliche thing to say, but I think about him often whenever something doesn't go in my favor, just how many times he had to pick himself up and he failed like hard. 
And yeah. so, yeah, it's a really good book. I recommend it. That was a tangent, but no, it's all good. I'll have to, I've, it's been on my list for a while. And I'm pretty sure like one of the guys I work with uh, at SI has always told me you have to read it. You have to read it. And so he's, he's had, it, he has it as a desk. Uh, Cause I remember always seeing it when I walked in. Good read. Yeah. Uh, one thing I, I noticed about you was in high school, you worked for the Bleacher Report as a columnist covering college basketball. What did you learn about sports reporting before even entering into college? Yeah, it's so funny you bring that up because I that was like way back when Bleach Report was kind of just getting started um, before even I think CNN like uh, had a deal with them uh, and before like they've blown into this big app um, and the site that they have now. Uh, it used to be a thing where you just signed up and could write and earn, I guess, like views and points and pages. I remember there's a bunch of slideshows and all that kind of stuff. Uh, for me, that was kind of like the next step up after my first ever kind of like reporting experience was here in New York City. Um, I was offered a chance to write for this site called nyhoops.com. I don't think it, it doesn't exist anymore. And what it was, it was just covering high school basketball in New York City, going out to um, schools that I, you know, wasn't even familiar with until I kind of showed up and watching games, writing recaps, interviewing coaches and athletes. And it was really like this firsthand sort of reporting experience. And I remember I was also kind of sharing, you know, the same, it wasn't even like a media zone or anything like that. Just like a row of seats with reporters from like the New York post and like Newsday and the daily news. And I kind of picked up on little tiny things that they were doing and they got to be a little bit familiar with me because uh, like I look fairly young, I think for my age. And so if I was in high school, uh, I must've looked like just a tiny kid um, doing trying to do what they were doing. And uh, so that was my first ever experience covering high school basketball in New York. And so I think the next step up was to try and like follow along with what the recruiting process was like in college basketball. And so that's maybe, I think what I brought to the table with, um, with Bleacher Report. I remember writing about, you know, the Yankees, Major League Baseball and all this kind of stuff for, for Bleacher Report that was um, all over the place. And so that it kind of was served as an outlet for me to, you know, dip my toes in all the mainstream sports and um, not necessarily make a name for myself, but just get a bunch of reps in that later on, I think proved to be valuable. Reps are so important, no matter honestly what you're doing and the reps where sometimes maybe people don't even see it or it's okay to make mistakes. You got to be able to do that in this industry too. Yeah. It's, it's always kind of like the more short writing that you do, the better you can kind of get and strengthen for like any of the, any sort of attempt at doing anything long. Like I, to this day, I think most times like feature stories I write are anywhere from a thousand words to maybe 2000 words at most. But like, I've never really tried to tackle like as much of a 5,000 or 10,000 word story just because, uh, you know, I'm still fairly young. I'm 27 and I think like I'm still developing as a writer, you know, sharpening uh, my skill set and, you know, developing the voice I have kind of within writing. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, that's another piece of advice I try and part is like, just get the reps in and do writing no matter for who, who it's for. Like if you're a college student or someone fairly young in the industry, uh, if you're, if you can't find like a big outlet or, you know, publication to publish a story that you really want to get out there, just, you know, start a blog or publish it somewhere. Um, and the more 
you get that practice down, I think like down the road, it, you'll be able to take cues and lessons from it that you'll be better at for, for longer stuff. So after you graduated from Marquette in 2015, you went to work for Flow Sports as a staff writer. And then you turned at ESPN.com yeah. in the digital section. So that was all during college. Oh. I, yeah, I worked for Flow Sports um, at Flow Track from when I was a sophomore in college um, up through, I think, my senior, into my senior year, um, kind of leaving Milwaukee basically every weekend to watch people run in circles and ask them a couple questions afterwards. And yeah. I got out to a bunch of different track meets and did, conducted interviews after the race, helped out with some like live commentary, whether it was play by play or color commentary. And, um, it was fun. And that was for me, very crucial in me developing a lot of, you know, relationships and connections that I have within the sport that are super valuable to me even nowadays. And so, um, yeah, that was awesome. And then I want the summer after my sophomore year of college, they offered me the chance to go out to Europe and cover the track and field circuit out there. And so I was living out of a suitcase for, uh, I think it was like four or five weeks, which was, but kind of like on an all expenses paid trip, uh, to Europe, my first ever time out there. So couldn't complain. It was great. Got to see like the best athletes up close. Um, and then the summer after my junior year, that's when I interned at uh, ESPN and got to, you know, experience, you know, life in Bristol, Connecticut and reporting every day to the, um, the HQ out in, uh, out there. And so crossing paths with like Stephen A. Smith and in the, on the lunch line, it was kind of funny and like surreal. Um, but it was cool. And my boss there was a big runner. And so he really appreciated sort of the work that I was doing, um, in covering the sport. And so that extended, I think, beyond the internship into, you know, my senior year at Marquette. That's really cool. Well, I definitely want to talk about relationships because those are like vital in this industry, but You've been at SI now for six years. How have yeah. you seen the reporting world or the digital world evolve since you've been there? Yeah, it's constantly changing, right? It's sort of like social media. It's so hard to keep up with the, the changes at times. Like, uh, I feel like last year, everyone was trying to learn what TikTok was like during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't, still don't even think I've got the, you know, quite a good grip on it. Uh, Do you and use so it? Do I use TikTok? Not, not, not to do the dances and stuff. I wish I was that cool. Uh, I browse TikTok for the most part. I think it just sucks my time for the most time, uh, for most part. Like I'm just, I'll get the the check every now and then where it's like, you've been scrolling for an hour. Like you should maybe take a break. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. Maybe I should. Uh, but within like the media industry, yeah, it's, it's, it's constantly changing. Um, I feel like people's attention spans uh, obviously are getting shorter. And so sometimes, you know, as beautiful and as awesome as I think like a super long story is, you know, I love that bit of storytelling, but is it for everyone? I think for the majority, it's, it's not nowadays. Uh, people now kind of want, you know, everything given to them right away. So stories and 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 profiles are getting a little bit shorter and sometimes people are pivoting to to video more um so that's kind of why for me podcasting has really like jumped onto the radar as my favorite sort of form of storytelling right now because 
yeah, I guess first and foremost, like I'll always love being a, a writer and that's what I went to school for and all that kind of stuff. But there's just something so special about being able to have a conversation with someone like you and I are having right now and then deciding to publish it within like an hour or two after it's done. Like there's just a little bit more of an immediacy to it. To it. Whereas with writing, like, yes, it's a process. One, you're interviewing someone, then you have to go back and transcribe, you know, the whole interview. And then after that, you have to craft the whole narrative around what you just listened to and wrote. Um, there's a whole editing process to it. And then, you know, kind of finally, by the time it gets out to to the real, wor- the real world, like it's, it's been through a whole process. And it, it it's really awesome sometimes when you're really super proud of that final product. Um, there's just something I think for me that I've really just enjoyed about podcasting where a 10,000 words or like a 5,000 word story takes a long time, but I feel like it's still less than what you can sometimes get out of like an hour long podcast or conversation with someone. Because if you were to transcribe a whole hour long podcast, like that's in and of itself, almost maybe sometimes 10,000 words. And so you can get a little bit more and you get a little bit more of that personality and like uh, the humor behind it, where you sometimes can miss that kind of stuff um, over, you know, written word uh, or short form video. So for me, yeah, it's definitely been a medium that I've leaned into, I think, a little bit more in the past couple of years, but I still definitely enjoy working on uh, profiles and, and stories like that. And I think we're headed in this direction where it's people want full authenticity when not not edited. And that's what you get sometimes with the written experience. But with podcasts, it's just you can edit it, but you still get people's like authentic selves. And now we're leaning towards Instagram who wants to take Mm -hmm. it away from pictures and making it video, which means less time to edit. So I think we're in a really interesting time where we're going to see some of these big social media platforms really challenge creators. Oh, definitely. And that's, I think one thing I was having a conversation with like uh, two friends of mine recently, who were like thinking of starting like a podcast because that's what everyone's doing nowadays is right you know (laughs) trying to start a podcast and uh they were kind of asking me it was like so like do I need a website and all that kind of stuff and honestly like sometimes you don't you like you just need like a really cool Instagram page and that because that's where people are I I think Mm -hmm. for the most part like people aren't going to straight up websites and then you know going logging on to find out like what's the latest episode of of this podcast it, you, it's kind of all just built into whatever, you know, platform it is, whether it's Spotify or Apple podcasts. And then if you follow them on Instagram, you'll see a photo or like a, you know, a graphic that'll tell you there's a new episode and that kind of stuff. So really like, it's interesting how some things you can do without and still be pretty successful. Right. Absolutely. And some people have separate Instagram accounts for their social or for their podcast. I don't even do that. I just make it all about, it's part of my brand, quote unquote, you know, like it's who I am. And, um, but yeah, that's interesting. So speaking of podcasts in 2017, you created Sidious, the magazine. First off, how did you come up with the name? Yeah. So Sidious means faster in Latin. Uh, and so it's also tattooed on 
the Olympic champion in the 1500 meters. His name is Matt Sentry. It's one of the biggest stars in U.S. distance running. He has a tattooed on his on his uh, shoulder blade. And I always thought like, oh, well, that's just free advertising if I really wanted it. Uh, And so I remember seeing it and I thought that. And then at the same time, it's a cool word. Um, It's actually the Latin pronunciation is probably kiddious, but I always thought like, well, the Boston Celtics probably should be the Boston Celtics, right? And but so let's just flip this word on its own. Like we can maybe do something with it. And so, uh, yeah. So Sidious Mag kind of came up that way. The funniest part is that I guess of the mag part, like because I initially envisioned it being like a magazine, like a digital magazine or something like that. But uh, to this day, I don't even know if we've ever really published anything like in print or anything like that. I think we're kind of working on a on like a coffee table book now. Um, but for the most part, yeah, it came out of the blocks as like a blog where me and some friends could uh, just geek out on running because one thing that was real was after the 2016 Olympics, when I came back from uh, from Brazil, I really hit writer's block. Like I didn't think it was a real thing until I actually experienced it where I just couldn't get the creative juices flowing and I care so much about the sport and like so many of the tiny things like I watch, you know, the track meet that only the professionals are at in at the University of Florida and at Stanford and that kind of stuff. And there's a mainstream interest drops off drastically after the Olympics where, you know, the Sports Illustrated audience doesn't necessarily care about track in 2017, the year after the Olympics. Yes, there's a. world championships but only really the track fans appreciate that um and so you've got now a runway from 17 18 19 until 2020 when the next olympics were supposed to be um and i do care about the sport and like all those little the world championships and the the track meets that pop up along the way but I didn't want to bother my editors at Sports Illustrated with like, hey, here's a 500 word recap on this track meet that happened out in, you know, in Minneapolis or something like that. So I took it upon myself to team up with some friends and be like, hey, let's just do this. And like, I guess I did figured I'd ask for forgiveness later on from Sports Illustrated and they they were totally cool with it. Um so we just started like our own blog where we could just geek out on on running on our own kind of time and bring some humor to it, uh, inject some more personality. And so be a little bit different than just the traditional ways that people have gone about covering the sport, whether it's, you know, there's a site, let's run.com is a big place where people go for like all the links and the big headlines in the sport. And it's all purely articles flow sports and flow track is was at the time, like very heavy on video. And so for me, I'm a big fan of, you know, the ringer and before that Grantland. And so I knew just kind of like the format they had with their online articles and their presence and their social and their podcasts, especially, I was like, well, I think the sport's missing something like this. So um, maybe we can build something that's similar to it. And that's kind of like where the idea came from and uh, where I feel like I've kind of taken it. Okay, that was my next question. What was the white space you saw in the industry? But that was a great answer. Essentially, there wasn't fun conversations. It was very an- analytical towards the the sport world or the track world. 
Yeah, I think we wanted to go beyond just like the results and the recaps and the videos and the typical interviews. So, uh, yeah, we came out with a lot of like relatable sort of humor uh, based content where people are sharing their firsthand accounts with, you know, what it's like, I guess, I don't know, like not necessarily like training for their first marathon because you can get that from like a runner's world. Like it wasn't necessarily training tips. It's kind of a lot of like personal reflections and all that kind of stuff that people looked at and were like, I can relate to this. And like, this is, that's me and that kind of stuff. So that's what hooked people at first. And then uh, from there, just kind of based off the access I had to people within the sport, uh, that's where I came up with the idea to start the Sidious Mag podcast. And from there, I was just sitting down with people weekly doing interviews on, you know, people's careers, their great performances lately and that kind of stuff. And so whether it was an athlete, a coach, an agent, uh, a celebrity that happens to run or whatever it is, like I did my best to just, you know, kind of kick back and chat with them in a, in a laid back way. And so um, that's where that's gone. And then from there, just launching a bunch of different shows, all sort of interview based, but um, in different sort of uh, areas that I feel like uh, the sport could, you know, use a little bit more attention. You mentioned that you're creating a coffee table book for Sidious yeah. Mag. How, what are some goals that you have for it? Yeah, this is going to be like a little limited of a run. I think we're going to come out with like 50 copies or something like that. Make it kind of very like cool to own. Like, oh yeah, I've got one of the first 50, like one of the 50 copies that we came out with this thing. And so we had a photographer who was out at the um, Olympic trials and got some awesome photos. And so I think there'll be an essay in there by one of my friends uh, who's involved with the site. And so he'll write something about just kind of like the, the, the Olympic trials and why it's a beautiful thing. And yet at the same time, so heartbreaking and like the best track meet in the probably, I would say like, I enjoy the trials. I think sometimes a little bit more than the Olympics. And then, uh, yeah, I'll have like an intro in there about how this is the first time we're ever doing anything in print. So it'll be like kind of cool. So yeah, we're kind of in the works right now with, you know, doing all the layout stuff and then finding, you know, our printer and making it a limited run. So, uh, yeah, it's sort of like, you know, kind of like how in fashion, you know, there's sneaker drops and that kind of stuff. So it'll be like a 50 copy coffee table drop and we'll see who buys it. That's so cool. And not speaking just about the magazine or the coffee table book you're creating, but how are you looking to monetize Sidious Mag in general? Yeah, so podcast advertising has been kind of the big driver. Um, that's been really good. Uh, during the pandemic, there was a little bit of a freeze just because there was so much uncertainty with like, hey, when are things coming back and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's through the podcast. I think that we make uh, most of our money uh, just because people want to tap into that audience. I feel like we've got a really loyal fan base that is, you know, between anywhere from the high school age group all the way through people in like their, you know, mid to late thirties, because that's, you know, the people who are still out there running and giving this sport like a honest shot. And so I think we've kind of gotten a good grip on them and it's not your sort of traditional, that's kind of like what the audience that these, you know, whether it's a 
shoe company or you know protein shake company or a lot kind of stuff that's who they want they want to tap into that and so i think just being transparent and authentic with with them and getting to know people getting for people getting to know me and some of the other guys behind the site just through our voices and like our characters um online whether it's on social media or through the podcast like that's been really fun to develop and so yeah i think the big thing has been uh podcast advertising but yeah, who knows? Who knows if there's other ways, I guess. I mean, Google ads, all that kind of stuff. It doesn't, it's all pennies kind of compared to things, but you know, it, it, it it's all something. <laughs> and the running world too is really the only sport that you can cover where people can actually relate because they still play the sport. You know, if you're playing, if you're covering the NFL, nobody else plays football who's 50, 40 years old. You know what I mean? It's these people can relate with the people you're interviewing to an extent. I think that's been a, big thing as to why there's a little bit of a comfort level that people have when they do, you know, agree to sit down and talk to me for a podcast and that kind of stuff. It's because uh, I'm still out there doing it. Like I'm training for the Chicago marathon right now. And just a couple months ago, I was trying to break five minutes for the mile. I didn't come close at all. Uh, and, you know, the training aspect of it is like really hard. So I can relate to, to someone. Yeah. I mean, if someone is like out there trying to break four minutes for the mile, like that's, you know, awesome and super impressive. But I also kind of know what it's like to fall short of a goal like that. And also to put in work, you know, five days a week, six days a week to, to try and achieve it. And so uh, while they might be going a little bit quicker, like, yeah, I can, I can relate. And so that's been I think really um, special to to also bring to I guess the the coverage. You mentioned when you worked for Flow Sports that you were doing analyst work and play by play work. How did you learn more in depth about this sport to be able to do that? So I feel like I'm a serial over prepare. Um, I remember one of the first times I helped out uh, with Flow Sports it was a cross country race that they were. Uh, filming and then doing the commentary in post and then uploading it afterwards. So it wasn't necessarily live. And the two guys, uh, Ryan Fenton and Alex Lore, uh, were doing the play-by-play for it. And I should have known that these guys probably know like who's who in the race and all that kind of stuff. But for me, I was sitting on my laptop, uh, probably 19 years old at the time, just researching every single person who was in this race. And a cross-country race can be like 200 people, but I was just trying to come up with facts and just PRs and all this kind of stuff on every single person I could. Um, and while these guys are prepping for like the race commentary. And so there's a chance I probably like fed them more than they ever needed. And so they saw that I like, I was pretty attentive to detail and that kind of stuff. And so I think along the way, watching a lot and, you know, taking in old, you know, races on YouTube and that kind of stuff. Like that's where I've kind of learned a lot about the history and the context of the sport. And then just being a part of it. I think I came into it at the right age where, being in my twenties and, and, and seeing kind of like these athletes, you know, go through sometimes the entirety of their career while I'm also kind of like getting my feet within the career, uh, within my own professional career. Like it's been, it's aligned really well. Um, and so that's kind of like how I've learned. And then, yeah, this spring, me and, uh, my friend Kyle Merber got to do a bunch of race commentary. And it was my first time back behind the mic and like, 
six years or something like that. Um, and it was a hit and it was, I, I think mainly because I hadn't done it in so long, but also because I've learned so much about the sport, um, over the, that, the course of those six years. And I've, you know, kind of become an insider and also, um, you know, I just pay attention to so much that I'm able to reference things and bring things up where I think that's one of the most important things to just any sport is the presentation of it. Um, and having people who are knowledgeable about it, uh, doing the commentary and the broadcast, uh, where, so that's been kind of like an area that, you know, Olympic sports have always kind of sought improvement. And, and so, um, yeah, we were able to test it out a couple of times. And so we did it three times, uh, in Texas and Kansas city and in New York, and it was a success. And so is play by play and commentary, something I want to do, uh, down the road going forward. I don't necessarily want to sacrifice every single weekend again to travel and go to all these different places, but it was fun. And so if I get the chance to do, you know, four quality, you know, broadcast uh, a year, then I think that's, that's my fill. And that's how uh, I'll enjoy that. So I listened to one of your most recent podcasts with Wes Felix and how he's been his agent for his sister, Allison Felix and for Colin Quigley and her new partnership with Lululemon. Really interesting to listen to, but you've gotten to interview some really cool people like Colin Quigley and Shalane Flanagan and Usain Bolt. How have you developed these relationships with these people to allow them to trust you to tell their stories? Yeah, it's, I guess for someone like Colleen, it's, it's funny because we, I have a video on my phone of the first time she and I ever did an interview together. And we were like, she was 20 and I was like 19. Um, and we were at the Florida relays in, in Gainesville and, she had just run a, like a personal best in a race and I interviewed her bar- barely knowing anything about her. And it was just sort of like, uh, at the time we were so young and then over the course of, you know, a couple of years, like now she's made an Olympic team and I'm writing about her for, you know, sports illustrated, or I'm interviewing her for my podcast. And so over the course of time, I think just like those friendships just kind of like naturally develop and, yeah, I think it's sort of like I try and keep things to like fairly laid back and 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 not to the point where it's like you don't go into a conversation with me thinking like what's he going to grill me on and like what's the gotcha moment going to be here and because if you do that then you do sort of lose trust from that other person and no one's going to want to talk to you. So, uh, yeah, there's a balance that needs to be struck for sure when it comes to cultivating those relationships. Uh but I feel like I've definitely done a good job of that. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, to, it, it is, it's good to kind of have like, oh, if some breaking news happens and I need to tap into, you know, Shalane for her insight on something that it's easy as I could just pick up my phone and, and shoot her a text and hope that, you know, she's not taking care of her kid uh, at the same exact time and then chat about it. So, um, yeah, I guess the, the access and the, um, the time has been uh, important for that. And constantly being around them when they're at their events, making sure that they see you. And do you, what's the process when you want to talk with these people and have them on your show when you kind of need something from them rather than the other way around? How do you set up that time? 
Yeah, I think for the most part, it's uh, the DM slot, I guess, is how nowadays like things go down. Uh, I feel like in the past, it's just like, I got to go through their agent and like email them and set up a time and that kind of stuff. But uh, just because of the uh, rep, I guess, or anything, uh, I guess the reputation and just the credibility I have now where it's like, I can just, you know, slide the DM and it, they'll, it helps to, for them to see, oh, you know, he's had this person on the show and this person on the show, like, sure i'll be a part of that and so um that's kind of like how the behind the scenes of you know doing some of these interviews uh works but i wish i traveled a little bit more like i I do definitely miss getting out to a bunch of track meets i don't necessarily want to give up every single weekend but uh yeah nowadays i kind of just mainly stick around on the east coast and then travel out to the big events like the like the olympic trials or anything like that so uh yeah. I mean, no Olympics this summer for me, but, uh, you know, the next one's only what, three years away, two years away. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and the Olympics are here. Literally we're just starting. They're starting on Friday. Um, but after this podcast release, we'll have started mm-hmm. the Olympics. You've covered the Olympics in the past. It's going to be weird potentially covering them from so far away. How do you prepare for an event or, a, or a sport where there's constant action? Yeah, it's a good question because I did so much preparation in 2016 before I went to Rio. It was funny because I would tell people, um, I think I was single at the time too, where I was like telling people, oh yeah, I'm going to the Olympics. And like, they'd be like, oh my God, that's so cool. Uh, But they didn't necessarily thinking maybe I was competing. But if you take one close look at me, you'd be like, there's no that person's competing at the Olympics. Uh, but it was, I was, and I would say I'm preparing for the Olympics. And I, it was true. I was drawing up documents where it's like I was saving a bunch of stats, you know, mm-hmm. in case this person wins, this is, you know, the fact about and the historical note on this person, they're the first person to win this medal since this person or this for the first medal for this country since this and all that kind of stuff. So I like definitely like over prepared um, to the point where. For Usain Bolt's 100-meter race, the 100-meter final, I had three articles pre-written. One was Usain Bolt wins gold in the 100 meters. Next one was Usain Bolt doesn't win gold and someone else. I'd fill in the blank and fill in the time because there's a chance that happens. And the third chance, the thing was that he false starts and doesn't even get to run in the um, in the final because that has happened in the past. That happened like in 2011, I'm pretty sure it was. Uh, and so... I was like prepared with that, pre-wrote a couple different things. And so, uh, yeah, I was like a walking stats book in 2016. And now this time around, like I have, I'm not traveling. So um, I can spend, I think a little bit more time, you know, prepping a couple, you know, tweets and documents and all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, that's kind of my process too. It's like, if there's something big and like, you just got to be ready for any sort of scenario and run through, you know, what if this happens and what if that happens? And so, yeah, maybe I go overboard with it a little bit, but, uh, you know, it pays off sometimes. You literally had them, those three articles written out or are they in your head? No, they're all written out. Like wow. I had them, like I could probably like go into my Google drive and find them. Like there were three and one of them was going to get 
publish. And so did I waste my time, you know, writing the other two? Maybe I spent like, you know, 15 minutes extra that I could have got back. But uh, you just, I think that's part of it too, is like, I, I'm kind of competitive as well. Like you don't, you don't necessarily always have to be first, but you want to be accurate and mm-hmm. speed definitely helps. And so uh, just like the people on the track, I guess I, I want to be first too. Right. So taking away the fact that you're not in Tokyo right now, you're in New York City about to cover the Olympics. What have you learned? What did you learn from covering the 2016 Olympics that you're going to do differently this year? It's a good question. Um, uh, I think it's going to be hard because access does play like a big role into mm-hmm. things. Um and not being there, like, I'm not going to be in the scrum that gets, you know, the, the quotes afterwards. Uh, most of it too, was all virtual, um, at the Olympic trials that just happened out in Oregon. Like it was a virtual sort of mix zone where you jump in a zoom call and you ask your question in the chat. And then there's a moderator who asks it and you hope that the athlete gives you what you need and that kind of stuff. Uh, so it's definitely different. And so, uh, I think this time around, it'll be a lot more sort of analytical and, uh, you know, kind of writing out like why this matters as opposed to telling, you know, flowery or like bigger picture stories because I'm not there. I can't paint the picture for, you know, the reader or the listener, or the viewer, like what it's like to actually be there. But I can tell you what I saw and why it sticks out to me and um, why it's important. It'll be more of like a recap rather than a recap. I think so. Yeah, I think that's that's what I'm going to be limited to this time around. Right. So one of the big stories coming out of the Olympic trials going into the Olympics was Shikari Richardson testing positive for THC. How has the track and field world now that nationally that story's gone down a little bit? How what's been the response you've been seeing from people in the community? Yeah, for sure that the rules definitely need to be changed. Uh and that's something that I feel like the, a lot of American fans and like people in the media caught some flack for because for internationally, because everyone's like, okay, yeah, now that it affected like an American, of course, people are calling for like this thing to, to the rule to be changed, but it's been pretty ridiculous for a while. And so, I mean, like there was, there's a case where someone got suspended for marijuana uh, a month before. And, you know, one of my friends pointed out the absurdity of it on, on Twitter, uh, beforehand. And so it, this just so happened that it affected the biggest star in one of the biggest events heading into the biggest, uh, stage of the sport. And so, um, yeah, I don't know where, like if there, the change that people are calling for is going to happen. If you take a step back and see that, yes, you know, marijuana is, uh, legalized in 18 or 19 States here in the U S but, this is, I guess, the sports abide by a world anti-doping code. And so there's so many places in the world where they're not as far along in legalizing marijuana and it's criminalized in some places. And so um, I think of it as like, yeah, I mean, we can you know push for all this change we want here in the United States, but uh, globally, like, I don't necessarily think it's going to be as quick. So um, I don't necessarily know if if the rules are going to be changed uh, mm-hmm. next spring or whatever it is next winter when they do review all the rules and stuff. But that's kind of been like the big takeaway. And I think the other thing too is that 
there were so many people who kind of like came off as like, oh man, like I'm so mad about Shakari Richardson not being able to run at the, at, at the Olympics. And it's like, were you going to tune in anyway? Because yeah. if you weren't, then like, uh, and, and this is the only reason you were going to, well, there's still some awesome stories in that race. And I think there's been like a little bit of like, some blinders have been put on that just because this was like a big American star, but the favorite right now is like, it's her name's Shellyanne Fraser price. She is a mom. Uh, she's, I believe like 34 and is coming back from pregnancy has already won gold twice. Like Bolt won it three times. She's going to try and match that feat. And like, that's an awesome story in and of itself. So I encourage like people to tune in to see if she can get it done and, and pull it off. And, yeah, Shakira Richardson's 21 years old. Like she's gonna have her moment, you know, three years from now. Uh, so there's there's plenty to enjoy now, and it's still you know a really awesome race to watch and and beyond. I think the games in general should provide some pretty special performances. And I think the soccer world could relate to exactly what you just said there. It's they're both really niche sports in the sense that the big stars are the only people who really shine. Mm-hmm. And unless you're an avid fan or constantly covering the sport, you don't realize that there's just as cool people or faster, stronger, competitive as the person who made headlines because of a suspension. Yeah, I'm sure, like hypothetically, if they said that no professional women's soccer players could be on the Olympic team, it had to be all amateurs, Mm -hmm. that you would still think hey, this is worth tuning into. And we've got some really great athletes on there. They're just not household names yet or not as popular. Um, It's still going to be a good thing to watch. And I think that's sort of like the way that I kind of feel towards a lot of things sometimes in track and field is that you might not know uh, the names that are taking place, but what you're about to watch is still going to be entertaining and special. And that's, I thought about it. Alex Morgan probably wouldn't have been in the Olympics if we had competed last year. Potentially she was coming Mm -hmm. off her pregnancy and Alex Morgan, I think is the most well-known name in women's soccer. It'd be interesting to see like ratings wise, how they would have compared if she wasn't on the field, you know, for the Olympics. I don't know. Anyhow. Um, Yeah. 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 I don't know. But so you've been in the sport for a while now you've covered the sport what is your perspective on sports enhancing and, you know, the sport being clean? It's always been a dark cloud that has hung over the sport of track and field for, you know, as long as I've been, you know, covering it, and, you know, since the 80s, since the 50s, probably uh, since way before I was born. And so mm-hmm. I, the way I enjoy it, the sport is I tune in and what I watch, I'm like, okay, you kind of have to suspend all that doubt and the skepticism for a bit. Yes, there sometimes will be people who are running crazy fast or doing something ridiculous and you and they came out of nowhere. And so your guard is up and you're like, that person maybe from like a country where anti-doping isn't, you know, uh, all that great. And so you're thinking that person is highly suspect. And sometimes there's clean athletes especially sometimes Americans who suffer and like miss out on a medal or, you know, the making the podium or winning uh, as a result of it. And that hurts that, but sometimes it's hard because it, it feels so obvious that someone could be cheating. And then there's other times where you see an incredible performance and other people are saying, well, that person must've been cheating. And you think, I still think that was pretty impressive. And so it's a give and take. Uh, I try and, you know, play 
uh, played as innocent until proven guilty. And the way the sport operates too sometimes is that now when someone is, I guess, called guilty, they still have to prove their innocence uh, sometimes because there's been some cases recently that have popped up and um, it's been fairly controversial. So, yeah, I mean, it's very polarizing. I think sometimes there's people who think one way and you're, you can't do anything to convince them otherwise. And then and you just kind of have to come to terms with it. I don't think you'll ever find you know, if you got a group of 10 track fans and made them watch one race, like someone would point the finger at one person, another point person would point the finger at another. And then someone would be like, I thought, I think everyone's clean and that kind of stuff. So, or someone would think, I thought everyone in that race is dirty. Like it's really that kind of a sport and it's a shame, but um, yeah, I try and, you know, kind of suspend as much of the skepticism as possible, even though sometimes it feels fairly obvious. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the Olympics is, uh, there's so many amazing stories to follow. You had just mentioned one. What are some stories that nationally no one's really speaking about, but we should really be keeping our eyes on for? So the big thing people are going to be probably like wondering is seeing is a couple of world records might fall. And that happens typically at the Olympics. But I think one thing, interesting component that people will probably try and pick up on and maybe unless you've been in sort of like the track and field space for a bit is that it's been happening for the last couple of years because there's been so many advances in shoe technology. And so now people are jumping onto the track with some, what we're calling kind of is like super spikes, like these spikes that, um, you know, they've got it, they don't necessarily have like a spring in them or anything like that, but there's a spring like sort of effect and people are running really fast because the toll it takes on your body when you're exerting yourself to the limit doesn't, you're not feeling it as much. So there's like a higher sort of like running economy sort of uh, is the way that people phrase it. And so, yeah, the less taxed you are towards the end of the race, the harder you can close and the harder you can close, the times will drop. And so people are running very, very fast. And I think footwear uh, advances are going to be uh, something that people could pick up on during uh, this Olympics. Allison Felix is a phenomenal story going to her fifth Olympics and the first one as a mom. She's already a household name. Um, and so that that that's probably something that the broadcast will key in on a lot. I think the one thing that people haven't really focused on is on the men's side, there's the potential that the United States could sweep gold medals in the 100, the 200, and the 400, uh, which hasn't happened in, I think, since 2004 or something like that. So um, could be a really special moment. So I think at the end of these these Olympics, there's the possibility, I would put, that 15 to 20 star athletes come out of this. And um, people whose names, like the greater sports audience, will kind of maybe start to recognize and pick up on, which is good because – for a sport like track and field, this there's no better time to try and like become a fan than now because we've got the Olympics this year, we've got a world championship the next two years, and then after that, you've got another Olympics. So we're pretty backed up right now on Olympics, Worlds, Worlds, Olympics. And so there's plenty to enjoy. And, and I think, uh, yeah, there's no better time to, to get in and, and on the sport than now. I want to go back to this, the uh, spikes conversation because Felix yeah. spoke, she has a new shoe out. Uh, yeah. Is there a certain shoe someone people should be watching for, or is it just every shoe in general is really going to be? So the big one is Nike. Nike's made these new spikes and they're obviously like, they've got the biggest budget. They're one of the biggest mm-hmm. companies in the world. Uh, and so Nike 
spikes have just become this big thing that uh, now competitors like at, I guess, Brooks or Saucony and that kind of stuff are allowing their athletes run in Nike spikes. Maybe they're blacked out. Maybe they're all like, they're like modified and to hide the swoosh because these, these shoes are just so good. Um, and so that's one thing that's been very interesting. And Allison Felix has made her own spike that hopefully is, you know, just as good or anywhere close to what the Nike ones are doing. But yeah, Nike has come out with these spikes. They're called the dragonflies. Uh, and so that, yeah, they've even got like a cool sounding name. And Nike, so yeah. um, wow, you'll see crazy. them. Yeah, you'll see them at the Olympics. And I'm sure there'll be someone keeping track of how many gold medals they've won and that kind of stuff. But yeah, they're, they're the big player in it. And everyone's kind of had to respond um, to these advances in technology. Why is Nike always the leader and who do you know the person behind the shoe specifically? Uh, I mean, they've just been historically like the, they're the biggest company in the world, I guess, like in the game. And so, uh, they probably have had these things like in development for like, I don't know, five or six years. And so they might already be, you know, working on the next iteration of this thing. It's just so far that like, they're bringing these things to market so much quicker than all the others. And it's the money for sure. Like Mm, that's true. being worth however much that they are, like, they've got the money to play with this kind of stuff. And they've, I guess, historically running has always been a big category for them. And so, yeah, maybe, maybe that's it, but it's so funny to think like we've got an arms race of sorts taking place on like people's feet. It's crazy. And you mentioned that there could be 10 to 15 new stars after this Olympics. Is there one or two that you think is going to surprise everyone? Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, Noah Lyles has been like a big personality. Like he's from, I think the, from Virginia, I'm pretty sure. Uh, he okay. is a sprinter. He's running the 200 meters. Uh, he's the reigning world champion. He's electric. He'll do backflips and all that kind of stuff after he w- wins races and uh, wore like socks from like the office and like Dragon Ball Z or whatever it is. Like, uh, so he's got, he brings like definitely some personality uh, to the sprints and then on the women's side um i'm trying to think shikari richardson would have been like the one but uh i'll go sydney mclaughlin is she's already made an olympics before in 2016 she was 17 years old when she made the olympic team one of the youngest um u.s track olympians since like the 70s and so she's like she just broke the world record in the 400 meter hurdles um, and made it look so easy. Um, she's got a bunch of big sponsorships with like New Balance and like has been on a couple magazine covers. And so uh, she's been a star since she was in high school. And so now this is her chance to come away with a, with a gold medal in a pretty cool event, just 400 meter hurdles, like running mm-hmm. faster times than people do. You know, I think it was like, it's 51 seconds is what her world record is. And so most people in the world can't even run one lap around a track without the hurdles in 51 seconds. No. And how many hurdles are there? Like, I think it's 10. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. We used to do that in soccer. We would do a 400 and we would do like a tag team relay. I think my best was ever like I don't I'm not even going to put a number out there because I don't remember <laughs> but it would 110 be good because someone would do like 110 for yeah a like 70. I, I feel yeah. like that oh 70 seconds it. for sure yeah nowadays yeah. like I 
I can't even run 70 seconds around a lap right now. I think I'd really have to try hard. I think yeah. my best is think in high school was like 50, 57 or 58 or something like that. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I, I was well, outside yeah. just like running thinking I could, oh, we used to do 10 120s as one of our mm-hmm. um, events we would have to do to pass our like fitness test. That's the word, fitness test. And I was like, oh, I can do that. I can still do it, right? No, no, I can't. <laughs> I can barely do like three. So it's, well, you still think you're in shape, like the way you used to be. And it's just, it's not the same. It's a wake up call. Yeah, the body sure. gets older. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. Okay, I'll definitely have to keep her my eyes because that makes her twenty two now, right? She's still really mm-hmm. young. Yeah, and I think she's got like hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram already. Like, definitely got sure. one of the biggest followings I think within the sport. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, real quick, just running in general, it's not a team sport, so you really create your own brand. And I think Colleen, I follow her on Instagram and Mm -hmm. uh, her like fast run braid Friday. She's really done a good job of, you know, growing a brand off of herself and making just random people who don't even play her sport. Yeah. I think that's one thing that she does so great is that you can cater to, you have to realize, I think at the end of the day, that track and running is probably one of the biggest sports out there. Cause all it takes is, you know, a pair of shoes to get out the door and, and people do it for health and wellness and fitness, not necessarily even paying attention to the fact that there's a professional side of things. Like I right. think most of the population doesn't even realize that there's people out there whose job it is daily to train and run and, and race. Um, and I think what Colleen does great is that she brings in some of that crowd by, you know, sharing training tips or, you know, peeling back the curtain of what life is like as a professional runner. And so um, that's why it's been so successful for her to connect with not just, you know, I guess to compare it to a marathon, there's the front end, it's the people who are, you know, running and winning these races and posting these record setting fast times. And then there's the people who are out there who are just trying to get it done. And like, whether it's going to take them six hours or eight hours or five hours, like they're out there. And I think the people back there don't know know what's going on in the front, but Colleen, they might know who Colleen is, or they connect with Colleen because she does a good job of sharing it and interacting with that kind of crowd. So uh, there's so much potential for the athletes to try and connect with that, that huge crowd. And so, um, yeah, that's always interesting. It is. And she does a good job of making people feel like she's training with them right next mm-hmm. to them. She shares her ab workouts and what she eats and her Pilates classes. And she did a really good job during the pandemic going live and just mm-hmm. talking to people, but also sharing her own life. And I think a lot of people hesitate to do that because it's very vulnerable, but I think she's only going to help her career post running by doing that. I think she's yeah. like a genius. Yeah, I was watching those those ab workouts while sitting on my couch, probably just like eating cookies. Eating <laughs> right. snacks. So it didn't, it didn't necessarily work as well on me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I see your pelotoning too, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Have, go ahead. Yeah, I'm not. She doesn't have like a Peloton sponsorship, but I think she was working on it, and like she's so good, she should get one uh, for sure. She should. I mean, that's that would help them. Like, and Lululemon is. They hit jackpot with her. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, running is really one of those sports where the general public only pays attention to it during the Olympics. You get so many mm-hmm. eyes on the sport during the Olympics. What do you see the IAF, IAAF doing to really promote the sport um, and get a consistent fan base? Yeah, it's a, it's a struggle sometimes because I don't know if you – 
I guess based off of like kind of your experience within the media, you kind of have been attuned to the fact that like uh, Major League Baseball like does a really bad job sometimes of sharing the highlights and the moments um, and the stories behind their athletes because they do, they own the property. They own all the MLB footage. And so they don't want it to get out there. And so sometimes that's a big obstacle within track is that things are behind a paywall or things, people have rights to the, this footage. And so you can't use it and, you know, it doesn't get out there and it just ends up in some place that no one's going to see. So there are challenges, I think, to what they do to share stories, but I think they do do a good job sometimes when it comes to sharing firsthand athlete accounts. I think uh, they have a site called Spikes Magazine where it's kind of like the Players Tribune of, uh, of track and field. So they do a good job there of connecting athletes to, you know, ghost writers who help tell their stories. And um, the World Athletics, you know, IWF TikTok is always really cool to see and and kind of also seeing the engagement numbers where it's interesting to me that oh, wow, there's pole vault video has, you know, two point something million views on TikTok. And it's just sort of like a regular sort of jump. But to a person who's not familiar with the sport and this ended up on like their For You page, like they think this is awesome and this is crazy and that's good. And so if it's getting out there and and you're really pushing as much as you can um, to share these moments and highlights, then, then I think it's a good thing. So yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, there's challenges for sure. But then at the same time, uh, there's some good that comes out of it. Yeah. And my last few questions for you. I saw where you raced the NSYNC band member, Joey Fatone, in a half marathon and you won. How did yeah. that happen? <laughs> that, that was, so it wasn't even a head-to-head race. Uh, okay. I, that, was, that was actually just my second ever, I think, half marathon. Uh, I was at Disney World. Um 2013 or something like that that was the first ever time uh yeah I'd run that it was at like five in the morning it was miserable so humid I was like at that point still starting off as a runner really overdressed probably like wearing tights and under my shorts and that kind of stuff and <laughs> looking really silly and I remember seeing Joy Fatone at the starting line and I I said hello I gave him a fist bump and then after that, I just, you know, I just ran my own race. I just so happened to finish in front of him and I'll take that as the victory. And oh. I think the next day he ran the full marathon. So he was doing both. Uh, so he gets that, like he gets extra points okay. for doing that. But um, yeah, most recently I raced Malcolm Gladwell, the uh, author of Outliers, the Revisionist History podcast, podcast host. He's 57 years old um, and he's big into running. Um, and so we had like a showdown, like it was billed as a big duel between me and him, uh, trying to break five minutes for the mile. And we did this in May and it was broadcast. It was like, it was kind of like the appetizer for like the main course is going to be all these professional races. And the first race of the night was going to be me versus Malcolm Gladwell. And it just so happened that the viewers tuned more in for the race between me and Malcolm than the rest of the meet. Like the numbers spiked on YouTube uh, when it was just our race that happened to go for like five or so minutes. And then uh, people, some people stuck around, other people tuned out, but I got smoked by a 57 year old and I'm 27 years old. And so uh, it was not my best moment ever. And I ran the slowest mile I have in like, 
in a while, like in a race. And so wasn't my day. And, you know, now he's got bragging rights and I can't live this down. Like it's been brought up on like, uh, it, it's been brought up every week, I think since then. <laughs> I could imagine. What did he run or how much he ran, faster was he? He ran five. 15 and I ran 523 or something like that. So I really tanked like he, and for 57, like that's great. Like he blew people away. Um, there's like a men's health article that came out, like someone wrote about the race saying Malcolm Gladwell, uh, smokes, uh, a 515 mile beats guy half his age or something like that. And so like, (laughs) that's all you got was guy. Yeah. The article gets into, into it, but, uh, yeah, and then like other, there's been a couple podcasts where people talk about that race and that kind of stuff. So uh, it was funny, and that's kind of like it was funny that an exhibition like that uh, made some ripples within you know the track and field space and hooked people to watch. And so maybe that's something that next year I kind of play around with a little bit more. I've got a couple friends of mine who have been on uh, the Bachelorette and the Bachelor, and so um, maybe. And I've got you know a couple friends who've been on Survivor. So maybe we do like a Bachelorette versus Survivor, like relay race on the track or something like that. So there's plenty of ideas like floating around already in my head to just kind of get creative with the sport. Yeah, that's so smart. And how did you get set up with Malcolm Gladwell? How did that happen? He's just a big fan of uh, Sidious Mag. And I think like was, uh, yeah, he just was a fan of some of the early blogs we had on the site. And I think at some point in 2018, I like reached out to him and I said to him, hey, like, I see you're constantly in New York. Like if you ever want to meet up for a run, like let's get to know each other. And we did. And the first ever run we went on, he like, we went and did like nine miles together and I was just like, Oh my, this is so, but I was like toughing it out. Like it was cold. It was like in January. And, um, but yeah. And then like kind of that kicked off like a little bit of a friendship we've got going and, um, you know, we're friendly rivals on the track. Uh, but yeah, then that's that. So, uh, I think I'll try and get him back on my podcast. I think during the Olympics, um, I'll be doing like a daily show, uh, each day of the track and field at the Olympics. And so we might bring them on as kind of like a guest to nerd out and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I saw where someone, I think you said, uh, my mom's watching and he's like, I'm probably older than your mom. <laughs> yeah, it was because it there was so much hype behind this race. And I, my mom stumbled across it and she was just like, uh, she was like, why are you racing an old man? And uh, I had to explain things to her. And then, yeah, then he's like, I'm probably older than than your mom. And I think they're actually kind of, they might be the same age. So uh, yeah, I lost to someone as old as my parent. Too funny. And then I saw one last thing, Rich Roll on your Instagram, which I think what he does is really cool. And how did you connect with him? And how is he in the track and field world? Uh, he's he's big into running as well so rich roll on his podcast ended up talking about the gladwell race and so there's like i think another clip on my instagram where it's rich roll talking about the race that happened in may and so that's when i kind of like got attuned to like oh wait rich roll knows who i am and uh i shot it i think i commented on one of his posts and he followed me and we traded a couple dms and uh then just last week i was in uh, I was here in the city and uh, I was going out for a run along the West side highway in Manhattan. And I hear this guy calling my name uh, and I had headphones on. So I barely, I almost missed it. And I look across the street and it's rich roll on a bicycle and he was like trying to get my attention. And so then we met for the first time there and 
chatted for about 10 minutes or something like that. And then, uh, yeah, super friendly. And, you know, I kind of went on my way and he, you know, rode off. And so, yeah, we've got to connect at some point where, you know, either in California, I'll go for a run with him or next time he's in New York. So, uh, but yeah, super nice guy. So cool. That's awesome. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on and, you know, chatting with me about the track and field world with the Olympics starting up. Where can people read what you have to say, hear what you have to say, and just follow you in general? Yeah, so I'll be writing for Sports Illustrated. So I'm sure I'll be somewhere on SI.com. I'm sure if you even just search my name, Chris Chavez, SI, or Sports Illustrated, that like my profile on SI will come up. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Chris Chavez on Instagram. I'm Chris underscore J underscore Chavez. Like I need to work on, I've been trying to get a hold of my name on that one, but this guy with like 12 followers has it and they can't, like, I can't get a hold of him to take the handle away from him. You can't DM um, him like and ask for it. I've DM'd him, but no response. Like this guy has been holding on to his account since for years and has never used it. And, uh, yeah, I'm trying. I'm like even reached out to like, hey, do I have any friends who work for Instagram who can just delete this guy's account and give me the handle? But now that hasn't been successful. So, yeah. And other than that, like I'll be doing my daily podcast during the Olympics um, on the Sidious Mag podcast feed. So that's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever people you know get their shows. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. So great meeting you, and best of luck covering the Olympics this month. No, thanks for having me. This is a, this is a blast. <laughs>